Hello, and thank you for joining today's Science AAAS webinar, Weaponizing Science for the Greater Good. This is the fifth in our series addressing important, timely, and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. I'm Sean Sanders, and it's my pleasure to be here to moderate today's roundtable discussion. I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this webinar series. Now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our esteemed and knowledgeable panel here with me in the studio today. As always, I'm going to give each of them a chance to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about what they do and what brings them to this discussion. First, we have Dr. Jack Shonkoff, who is, a, who is Professor of Child Health and Development at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is also Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital and Director of the University-wide Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University. Jack works to bring credible science to bear on public policy affecting children and families and to develop new measures of stress effects and resilience in young children. Next is Dr. Cynthia Miller-Idris, Professor of Education and Sociology at American University in Washington, D.C., and Senior Fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, where she focuses on researching cultural dimensions of radical and extreme right youth subcultures and school-based responses to radical and extreme youth engagement, as well as knowledge production and internationalization in higher education. Next to Cynthia is Amanda Klassing, uh, acting co-director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch, where her work focuses on sexual and domestic violence, reproductive rights and economic and social rights, as well as rights to water and sanitation. Amanda is also a founding member of the Human Rights Methodology Lab. And finally, I'm pleased to present Marco Puduca from the Luca Concioni in, uh, Association in Italy. Marco was a senator in Italy until, until 2013, serving on the Foreign Affairs, Just, Justice and Human Rights Committees, and has coordinated the activities of the Nonviolent Radical Party at the United Nations in New York, Geneva and Vienna for the past two decades. He is also coordinator for the International Science for Democracy platform. So a warm welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Um, you. I'm going to start with you, Marco, if you could kick us off with uh, an introduction of yourself and what you do. Well, I coordinate the activities of this international platform called Science for Democracy. And the main topic for of our work is to promote science as a human right. The United Nations has included in a lot of international instruments on human rights science, from the Universal Declaration to the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And more recently, they have dedicated some time to come up with a general comment on what this right to science, let's call it that way, mm -hmm. would entail. And we're looking forward to the publication of this document in October 2019 and see how from those elements and suggestions the UN will come up with the guidelines to mm -hmm. invite governments to respect the right of and to science. Fantastic. Amanda, you're up next. I co-direct the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch is an international independent human rights organization that operates in over 90 countries. Our mission is to investigate and expose human rights abuses and advocate for change. 
What that requires is that we actually use methodologies that sometimes engage science. We also sometimes have to document human rights abuses that are related to science or caused by um, scientific technologies that have not quite been regulated or are being misused. And we also look to have policy recommendations that use science to the greater good and actually help mm -hmm. solve some of the greatest human rights abuses or human rights challenges of our time. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Cynthia. Great, thanks for having me. It's a timely panel for me because just this week I've uh, entered a new role at American University as the Director of Research for uh, the American Center on University Excellence where, among other things, I'll be charged with um, building a, a capacity at the university to look at the far right's attacks on uh, higher education, on scholars, and on knowledge itself. And so I'm happy to be uh, here having a chance to talk about those issues. Fantastic. And Jack. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. So the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard draws on faculty from across the university to uh, dig deeper into this kind of revolution in science, and particularly in biology, to understand more deeply uh, the early life origins of the foundations of effective learning, development, physical health, mental health, and to make that science accessible and actionable to address disparities and outcomes. Uh, most typically related to structural inequities and all of the things that um, consume those of us who care about social justice. I am a pediatrician by training. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, again, welcome all of you. Um, we have a very diverse panel here today, which I think is fantastic. I think we'll get a lot of different opinions and different uh, outlooks. Um, and, but what I wanted to do was start off by discussing very briefly the title of the webinar. Um, and I've had some comments from our viewers. I've had some comments from the panel about the use of the word weaponizing. Um, it was a term that we purposefully used to try capture the viewer's attention. But um, the other reason for using it is that science, I believe, has been weaponized in different ways by different groups. Um, some um, uh, believe, I, I believe that some are using facts and figures of science in an effort to intimidate opponents. Um, I think others cherry pick facts and misrepresent information um, to make the argument possibly more compelling. And um, others, continue to use evidence that has often thoroughly been thoroughly debunked, um, as in the case of, of vaccines. Um, so to kick off the conversation, I wanted to ask the panel just to come up with an example or two that, you know, from your work um, that talks to how science has generated a positive change and what factors contributed to that success. So um, why don't we start, Amanda, if we can start with you. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we have been focusing on in the Women's Rights Division is racial disparity and cervical cancer mortality rates in the United mm -hmm. States. And we see cervical cancer as a human rights issue because it is highly preventable and highly treatable. If it's caught at um, early stages, there's a 93% survival rate after five years. One of the things that is true about cervical cancer is that it used to be one of the leading causes of cancer deaths in the, in the US among women. But science has led to better testing and also to the HPV vaccine. With the HPV vaccine in place, there are many people that believe there could be eradication of cervical cancer in 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. Our concern, of course, is that in um, states like Alabama, um, there's such a low rate of HPV vaccine coverage and the rates of cervical cancer actually increasing, and black women are twice as likely to die of cervical cancer than white women. And so we're looking to expand the coverage rate of HPV vaccine as a human rights obligation mm -hmm. to address what we think is a human rights concern. Mm -hmm. Great. Marco? 
Well, I think what is interesting about science and the relationship with decision-making or politics in general is that it's a method. It's a method that's based on, on collaboration and inclusion and in sharing information based certainly on opinion and views, but also on facts. Mm -hmm. And the fact that every time now we have a debate, you all, in addition to the opinions of the debaters, you also have figures that have been produced maybe the day before or maybe the, the month before and not 10 years before. I think they can bring a lot additional arguments to promote change. Then, of course, I agree with you that it's difficult sometimes to have <coughs> also a good army if you want to keep the, the same uh, framework of mm -hmm. weaponizing in favor of uh, supporting change for the greater good than uh, defending change uh, from the people that don't believe that the greater good needs uh, additional changes. But the, the fact that the scientific method can also per se be a, a, a paradigm or a new paradigm that can be included in debates as well as decision making is very important. We haven't seen much happening lately, and perhaps the opposite is coming up, but the fact that science is becoming a topic for public discussion and public debate, and a lot of scientists are finally taking to newspapers and magazines to write about not only what they do in the lab, but what they need to do outside the lab to promote the, what they're doing inside the lab, uh, is also a very positive outcome. So if I'm not sure if I answer your question, but mm -hmm. I mean, science is becoming a topic for discussion, which is a very positive outcome mm -hmm. and development. Right, Cynthia, how about we go to you? Well, one of the things that uh, has been very clear in the social science on radicalization of young people is that social media plays a big role uh, mm -hmm. in that. And so I would say one of the really positive things that's happened in the last couple of years is that we've had some very strong social science showing that the algorithms themselves are contributing to that rad radicalization um, and in ways that actually have helped search engines um, change the way that they design those algorithms and the way that they use those algorithms to prevent young people from, or to, to help, you know, to, if not completely prevent, but to slow down the, the, the way that um, searching for something will lead you down a path that takes you into white supremacist content. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of something like Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, which, um, which really did help change the way that Google um, you know, designs its search algorithms. And I think what helps that kind of change come about is, have, is, is really having scholars um, and faculty who are more diverse, who bring more diverse mm -hmm. lenses, who don't just look at research questions the same way. And I think that's a really important um, uh, way to think about the way that science, you know, the kinds of questions that get asked determine the kinds of questions that get answered. And when you have <coughs> a non-diverse group of scholars asking those questions, it can be really difficult to get different questions out there. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's interesting you, you talk about that because we just got a question asking about AI and um, the, the databases underlying some AI and machine learning. Um, and actually this viewer wonders if um, making the models and the algorithms publicly available would be yeah. helpful. So do you think it's scholars that who should be looking at this or is there a way for the public to be involved? I, th I think the public should be involved. <coughs> I think that, um, I'm not sure about uh, making it completely public or not, but I, I would think that having, um, if, we c if we don't have enough diverse designers and we don't have enough diverse coders, I think we, n we need certainly need more public interaction with those algorithms and we, and we all absolutely need earlier, uh, I think it's already begun in early elementary school even coding and groups like Black Girls Code, I mean, groups that really promote mm -hmm. diverse voices, learning how to code and design algorithms as well, which I think will also contribute to change. Mm -hmm. I think we should learn from the free uh, software movement or the open mm -hmm. software movement mm -hmm. of uh, some 25 years ago, because it's exactly the same thing at the nth 
uh, that I mentioned, because it's also happening all over the world now, and not only in the U.S. or not in Northern Europe. But mm -hmm. I think it would be good at least to know how these things are put mm -hmm. together. Then, of course, I agree with you that not necessarily ev everything can be put mm -hmm. open to the public. Yeah, and I think that also touches on science education. You know, mm -hmm. to come back to your point and, and the right to science. Um, and, and education. So, Jack, let's go. Yeah, to no, you. I, it, interesting listening to these comments that this, that we have this tradition of, of some part of the population owning and controlling science mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. figuring out how to, how to make it accessible and how to use it to drive policy or, or public opinion. And I think um, one of the most important things we've learned is the extent to which making science more accessible and understandable to a broader uh, range of constituencies can kind of change the narrative. You know, I mean, I work in the early childhood field, <clears throat> and for a long time there was a push of trying to convince policymakers and other decision leaders about the importance of investing very early in life when many people feel this is family privacy and not a role mm -hmm. for the government. To have people talk about science to policymakers and tell them why they should develop certain policies um, really didn't get very far for people who had beliefs mm -hmm. that pushed against that. But what we found is, when we made, when we taught um, policymakers who were resistant to some of these policies about the science, without telling them what they should do with it, but may help them become more mm -hmm. knowledgeable, it changed the narrative. It demystified the science. It made it more of a co-owned commodity, and actually resulted in a lot of change as a result of um, de-weaponizing science <laughs> and um, and democratizing it. And mm -hmm. having uh, then people say, well, what should we do about this knowledge? as opposed to telling them what they should do based on the knowledge that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes scientists have the tendency to use their data as a club <coughs> rather than as an opening. You know, mm -hmm. they want to beat someone down with the data and say, well, we know we're right, but that doesn't really open a conversation. So, so uh, let me come to some examples, if, if you have them, of um, ways in which science was, was misused. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm going to start with you, Marco, because I, I know previously you talked about how um, science's uh, decisions are made in, in the northern part of the, mm -hmm. the, the world, the northern hemisphere, and often they impact countries elsewhere in the world, uh, maybe unintention with unintentional consequences. So I'd like to speak well, to Rather that. than misused, I would say not used. Uh, mm -hmm. The European Commission has something that's called the Scientific Advisory Mechanism and not Committee. And they are independent scientists that provide advice for uh, on some specific decision but it's not mandatory mm -hmm. for the commission to go before taking a decision to this group and see what they think and then take a decision same can be said about the jurisdictions uh, in July 2018 the European Court of Justice adopted a decision on new breeding techniques or mutagenesis considering uh, the genome edited plants to be regulated with the 2001 uh, directive that was uh, adopted concerning genetically modified organisms. Now, I'm not saying that an old law is necessarily worse than a new law, but CRISPR, for instance, Cas9, was invented in 2012. So everything that has happened between 2001 and 2012 was not taken into consideration when they took a decision in 2018. So this is not misusing, it's not using. So the law is important, but at the same time it should be informed by some evidence. I mean, mm -hmm. the right to science is exactly this. You have to allow the benefit of the latest discoveries for the, the greater good and certainly the welfare and, 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 and well-being of uh, humanity, but at the same time of regulation. So 
not taking into consideration the latest discoveries, not because science is the new religion, is the new law, but certainly has to be consulted before, during, and certainly after to try and see if the decision taken was the best to try and regulate a specific phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So why do you think this happens? Why, are, why do you think policymakers are not looking at the latest science? Is, is there fear? Is it ignorance? Is, is it something else? Well, they want to get re-elected. So the first constituency mm. they look at is their voters. And mm. some, because in this specific case, <coughs> for instance, was a group of peasants that uh, are getting a lot of money because Europe has subsidized its agricultural sector big time. So they wanted to keep these little privileges in place. And so you have to say yes. Now, of course, the judges, in theory, should be uh, a little more independent than politicians. But at the same time, it's not yet become inside the mechanism for uh, courts and jurisdictions to invite the, the science as, a, as one of the uh, necessary interlocutors to write the decision-making process. And this is a problem. Finally, because the decision was bad and it's going to cause problems not only in Europe, but you were mentioning other parts of the world. We can mm -hmm. think about Africa mm -hmm. that cannot uh, use any kind of BT uh, maize or rice because otherwise the Europeans wouldn't buy it or mm -hmm. would buy it, but after having gone through a lot of bureaucratic problems, uh, things are changing, but are changing from calls from outside and not inside, which is good mm -hmm. and bad at the same time, I would say, because if you're a judge and you believe to be above the law or be, because you are the one that has to... Uh, uh, apply the law and don't think that other people can make a contribution to their final decision, it's a problem. It's good that also thanks to the march of science that uh, were born here in the United States three years ago, finally things are moving and uh, I think this is actually for the greater good. Mm -hmm. Great. Cynthia, can I come to you? You have an Yeah, any sure. Examples? I mean, I think, um, you know, when it comes to looking at the far right and, and uh, the the misuse of, um, of scientific or social scientific knowledge, I think I would look at a couple of different categories. And one is, um, of course, the rise of conspiracism and conspiracy theories. So the, the lack of, the, the absence of actual evidence, but just the claims that kind of get put forth and, and how that can kind of um, lead to violence. Um, but in addition to that, we also have the, I would say, the cherry picking or the misuse of um, mainstream social science that gets layered on with different ideological claims. So you'll have mm. a white supremacist group taking Robert Putnam's book on bowling alone, for example, and promoting that, which is a book about the decline of civic engagement in the U.S., um, and, and using that as a way of, um, of, of arguing that uh, increasing immigration is ruining American civic life. Um, so I think one of the things that social scientists have to be aware of is that their findings are, are out there and, and being taken up with different kinds of ideological interpretations than they may have intended. And that's um, something that certainly a lot of social scientists are not trained to think about. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you used the example earlier of vaccinations, mm -hmm. uh, immunizations, mm -hmm. and I think it's a nice model for understanding two different ways in which we can uh, benefit from science. The actual development of immunizations is a technical scientific challenge and uh, requires the best technical scientific expertise to develop the immunizations. The implementation and the widespread use of immunizations uh, when there's resistance is not purely a technical scientific question, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it gets into important issues around people's differences in values, what they're willing to believe or not willing to believe, who they hear it from, who they trust. And so this is a good example of where I think the scientific community is uniquely qualified to develop immunizations. It's uniquely unqualified to figure out how to deal with the resistance to immunizations. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not a scientific problem in, w in the way in which we narrowly define science. And I think that 
same thing applies to some people who think of science as a study mm -hmm. that just came out that that somehow garnered a lot of I interest in the media. Mm -hmm. A study is not science. Science is the cumulative buildup of knowledge mm -hmm. that comes from multiple studies. So I, 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 I think we dilute and we undermine the value and the power of science when we think that science can go from what it's learned from how to apply it. That, mm -hmm. That's a whole other different challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, that, so you're saying that it's it's a long way from e even a, a body of knowledge in science to act to affecting some change. So, for me, th this gets to the heart of the work we do mm -hmm. is to differentiate between making knowledge accessible, making scientific knowledge something that can be understood and owned by more mm -hmm. and more people, and then figuring out what to do with that understanding, that mm -hmm. scientific knowledge, where the actual successful implementation requires. Uh, partnerships mm -hmm. beyond mm -hmm. just scientists kind of telling mm -hmm. people what we should do. Mm -hmm. Well, part of that I think is because, you know, on the, back to the vaccination issue, um, the, that I think scientists sometimes think, and social scientists, that if you present the information, people will make rational choices. But, mm -hmm. but in fact, people react emotionally often, right? But Not really rationally. It's interesting you bring this up, because in Italy we had a big movement, and mm -hmm. it, at the end of the day, they didn't have any impact on the yeah. rate of vaccination rate. So they had a, a lot of media attention, but in the end, 95% of the people had their children vaccinated. So this, sometimes you also have the media, which is a huge mm -hmm. problem. Right. I know that you had a webinar on communicating science and all these mm -hmm. things uh, in the past but you are uh, emphasizing something that it's like the uh, the opinion of a very small group of vocal people which has apparently no uh, constituency that is supporting that then the conspiracy theory is a different story but I think the vaccination and at least in Europe in southern Europe has been uh, tested in, in this way so a mm -hmm. lot of noise but in the end no results mm. Mm -hmm. you know I'll, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here <laughs> Model, bad role model, <laughs> talking about science where I don't have expertise. But w it's interesting to look at what's happened with the climate change issue. Mm -hmm. That what really most of the public doesn't understand is the science behind why climate change is a problem. Most of the discussion goes from climate change to policy solutions right. mm. uh, that people either resonate to or don't resonate to, and there's no meaningful mm. dialogue here. If the focus was on explaining what is behind, from a scientific point of view, this change in climate, and then say, so what should we do about that? Mm. Uh, then you get more people come to the table. You can hear where people are coming from. You can hear what they, what they find objectionable, what they find potentially acceptable, and it would be a very different conversation. Science could be much more powerful than just moving from a finding or a conclusion to a prescription for mm -hmm. a policy answer that immediately elicits battles. Yeah. I think climate change is a great example of where science also sometimes has a disconnect with the public mm -hmm. and doesn't really recognize or re know how to deal with traditional knowledge or knowledge that is just held with people and how they understand the world around them. And some of that is a science literacy problem and some of it is also, I think, a problem of having shared language. Mm -hmm. and so you know, we see that, of course, in, in climate change, but also for example, when um, a company is going to come into an area and, and, and conduct mining or mm -hmm. agriculture, uh, industrial agriculture, and they have their own environmental impact assessment, and it's written in very, you know, instead of legalese, very scientizees, or, mm -hmm. and, and community, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a lawyer, so legalese is a, you know, is a curse, but, you know, in very, 
very you know difficult terms and people aren't quite sure what it what it means <coughs> and trying to find a scientist mm -hmm. to, to refute it or trying to really um, take it into consideration into human rights mitigation or how they can actually use this to 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 enter into negotiations with a company is difficult and then their their knowledge their sense of what's mm -hmm. happening to their their land or their property isn't respected in the same way and so I think uh, part of a role for a human rights-based approach to science is thinking about how do we have that access to information on both ways and bring people in through a participatory model of understanding and using science for, for good. This actually touches really nicely. I mean, we've moved sort of into the communication sphere and it, it touches very nicely on a number of questions that have come in about communication. Um, and to your point, this, this viewer says, how can we communicate science in a way that, um, that we can balance our best understanding with the intrinsic uncertainty in science? And, mm. you know, he says, or she says, science is inherently prob probabilistic. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a, a question that, that I've struggled with as well, is, is scientists talk a certain language, to, to your point, Jack, and the public understands maybe some of those terms in a different way. So how do we address that? How do we bring that together to, to, to back to Jack's point, that gap in the middle between the science and the policy. How can scientists help with that? Because scientists are not necessarily good communicators and communicators are not necessarily good scientists. Mm -hmm. So okay. where, where can we bring them together? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. I think we all have a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 you no, go, no, go first. Go ahead, Amanda. One thing we're really interested in is human rights methodology is often based on qualitative methodologies mm -hmm. and as there are complex human rights problems having the rigor of science contribute to proving the case is always very attractive and there there's you know not a shortage of scientists that want to contribute to human rights evidence base the challenge is we want to prove that there has been something done, that there is mm -hmm. causation, that there is you know, not correlation. We want to be able to say because of this action, this happened, and therefore rights were violated. And so mm -hmm. I think it's always very interesting when you're working with scientists to find language that they're comfortable with mm -hmm. um, that fits within the theory of the case that gets to the policy change that you are hoping will be taken. Well, I, I also think people are moved by stories, right? And we know mm -hmm. that, that the public's moved by stories, that policymakers are moved by stories, but stories are anecdotal. And so there's this inherent tension between the anecdotes that, that um, will move people to action and the data that will, that will prove patterns or show that there are patterns, at mm -hmm. least, and maybe not prove is, is, is too strong. And so I think one of the things that, that we can do is, is create better mechanisms to train scientists to figure out how to communicate those patterns that they're finding with some of the uncertainty, but also share some of the stories. And I think, um, you, you know, there, there are plenty of folks out there doing it really well, but they don't, most people are not natural at that. And it's mm -hmm. certainly not rewarded in the academy or in, or in yeah. the science, uh, the world of science, um, initially at least, to do that. So we have to find ways to create um, training mechanisms and reward structures that allow people to communicate, whether that's over social media or in panels like this, or um, mm -hmm. and also kind of mentoring cross-generationally so that younger generations um, are, are being brought into the fold, knowing how to do that better. Mm -hmm. 
And I think you have to do a lot of persuading rather than imposing mm. and, and teaching or preaching because this is the most important part. I don't want to say that you should do like the, the Denzel Washington in the movie uh, Philadelphia, like explain it to me if I were like if I were a five-year-old. But I think mm -hmm. it, to a certain extent, some complex issues should be explained that way. So imposing is always felt like uh, a little bit of some sort of. Um, a negative reaction, and so mm -hmm. persuading and talking people mm -hmm. into, I mean, the, the relationship you just described between, it's a technical relationship mm -hmm. if you want, but the outcome of all these exchanges between human rights lawyers and the, the forensic law, for instance, it's something that is um, related to a very specific event. But when you have to go and then tell it to the public, you know, say, no, we are not, we're changing the law because of, they say, of course, we're changing the law, or we believe that the law should be changed because, mm -hmm. and you try to persuade the audience, that it's for also in their interest, which in the, at the end of the day, it's what it's actually happened mm -hmm. and, and should happen. Yeah, I, to happen. I want to build on, on what all of my colleagues have just said. Mm -hmm. you, know, you made an interesting comment at the beginning of this piece of the discussion about uh, people needing to understand that science is more probabilistic mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. precise. Well, aren't we all more probabilistic <laughs> rather than precise? I mean, the general right, public yeah. doesn't kind of think that everything yeah. is precise. And th I'll mm -hmm. put my pediatric hat on right now. I mean. Um, so when you when you're dealing with healthcare or actually anything, we're all anything that requires decisions. We all know that we rarely make decisions based on complete information, mm -hmm. right? So we're mm -hmm. always making decisions based on incomplete information, mm -hmm. and um, and so I think part of the problem here might be that help science might be more um, well received by the general public if we help the public understand the power of science with its unanswered questions and not just mm -hmm. thinking that it has all the answers. And I think the communication issue here has a lot to do with knowing who your audience is. So if we say we, we need to be better communicators of the science, the question is you have to know your audience. There are different audiences. and You have to know how they're going to hear what you say, no matter how clearly you say it. So you're right? humanizing science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and that gets back to some of the emotions, I think, which is that sometimes, I mean, I think scientists and social scientists are taught to you know, try to be objective, try to be neutral, try mm -hmm. to, right, or recognize your subjectivities, but then set them aside, write it up in your methods appendix, right, keep, right. Them, keep them all kind of bracketed. But, you know, real people outside of the academy and, and um, on the ground are, you know, they're, they're infusing their decision making with issues of moral reasoning, with values, with what's important to them. So when we look at, you know, things like child detention at the border and what's going to move people to understand that that's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we have to make a normative, right? We're, we're saying this is wrong to put children in cages. Um, but why, right? And so we can have science about the effects of that kind of trauma long term. We can talk about the cost of that um, for mental health. We can talk about all kinds of things. But in the end, I think what moves people really is a question of morality on something like that. And that's something that scientists are, are really quite uncomfortable often talking about, mm -hmm. I think. Well, because they're no more expert in it than anybody exactly. else. Exactly. Right, I mean, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, We're not political philosophers, right? right. We need somebody else at the table to talk right. about that, right? And, and I'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up because a, a question came in um, that is specifically for, for, for Jack um, asking about how science about child development and the effects of toxic stress can inform policy and practice right <coughs> now. Mm. So, yep. you know, to, to broaden that, that question is, is I with the understanding that it takes a while to communicate, it takes a while to persuade, what about those times where it's imperative, mm. something is happening now, how can we talk about that, how can we move the so needle? So toxic stress is a great example. I mean, 
that, that term was coined um, now about 14 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of took on a life of its own. It's the science that's developed since then has made it even more clear that that is a reality, that excessive chronic activation of the stress response systems uh, has a weathering effect and does, uh, really disrupts brain circuitry and metabolic systems and the immune system. So that, that's real. Um, that's not the same as saying, um, as helping us figure out what we do about that, right? So, and this is part of the problem. I think where science needs to be better engaged in a reciprocal relationship with people who are gonna make something happen. Because a lot of the science is just mostly focused on continuing to elegantly describe and measure the phenomenon mm -hmm. and think about, and, and go deeper into the nuances. The real question is, how do we, how do we reduce and prevent or mitigate the effects of toxic stress. Mm -hmm. That's an implementation issue. That's an action agenda that scientists don't, in fact, the scientists I work with who are inspiring, the first thing, they love the fact that their science can mm -hmm. inform this, but they immediately back off when they're asked, so what should the policy mm -hmm. be? Or what mm -hmm. should the program be? They don't know that. They're honest enough to say they don't know that. But people on the ground who are making those decisions kind of need to understand this in a way that then they can feed questions back to the scientists mm -hmm. or program developers uh, so that they're not just studying what is of interest from a scientific point of view, but also mm -hmm. responding to questions that need good scientific investigation mm -hmm. about what works, what works for whom, what doesn't, what works for some kids and not work for other kids, mm -hmm. and why does it work? Because if we don't understand why some interventions work, we can't take them to scale because when we take them into diverse contexts and we have to adapt them, we don't know what to do. So this is where science could be tremendously powerful if we focused more on the actionable part of it and not just banging mm -hmm. people over mm -hmm. the head and telling them we have a big problem. Mm -hmm. So Amanda, to, to your work and, and Human Rights Watch as a whole, I mean, they're very involved in this type of thing where they see issues. So how do, how do you see that from your perspective when an issue is observed somewhere around the world and you want to do something, how can you bring in the science to, to, to do that? So it, it depends. There are lots of many different contexts wh where we can use science. So increasingly, there are more and more closed societies where we actually can't get in and talk to people. Mm -hmm. And so we have looked to science to help us solve that, that methodological challenge. So we've been using more and more satellite imagery, using um, there's big data that we have to figure out how we could actually access and use it or validate the massive amounts of social media um, posts that can actually help track something that happened. And so that's one area. Another is, as I said, increasing our methodological rigor, particularly when we're trying to go for patterns and really mm -hmm. demonstrate you know, these few anecdotal cases that give us a lot of understanding about different steps or different barriers that people experience. How how pervasive is this? Mm -hmm. And what does this mean as far as, as responding to, to this particular issue? One of the things that we've done is with um, Columbia's law school and with NYU's law school is co-found a human rights methodology lab where we brought together, bring together academics that have an interest in this area with practitioners to really workshop projects and think about if um, these are very real constraints because civil society and nonprofits in particular have real constraints. We also have the constraint that we want to act quickly. We want there's something terrible happening. We want our research to be out soon enough that policymakers can do something before there's worse impacts. And so we um, don't have five-year population-based studies that we can work with. We don't have um, control groups or we 
a lot of money or mm. graduate students. And so bringing together everyone to have a conversation about what are the realities of this work, but also how can we be more rigorous, has been a, a rich opportunity to, to really build on our skills. And bringing in partner organizations that are based in the global south to, to express their even more extreme uh, restrictions and how can they actually use science better to document the issues that they're facing. Um, I'm going to come back uh, quickly to, to something that you were saying, mm. Cynthia, about um, anecdotal evidence mm. um, and a question from our viewer. I, I have to just throw in my, one of my favorite quotes is, anecdote is not the singular of data. <laughs> um, which I can't remember. I think it was on a T-shirt that I saw that. But uh, I think it's a, a, it encapsulated really nicely um, how we, we need to understand that when we're talking about anecdotes, it's, it's, it's not a part of the data. It's, yeah. it's simply a personal experience. But th this viewer asks, um, um, how can... Uh, how do the, the guests um, think they, that we should handle the fact that um, scientists are handling data in the laboratory in controlled experiments, but the average person reacts um, to what they experience and mm -hmm. something that is obviously anecdotal. Um, and that the, the biggest challenge is possibly refuting anecdotal evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with the need to refute it, maybe just help people understand it. So you have mm -hmm. any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, one of the things I would say is that the, for, uh, the translation for social scientists is, although there are social scientists who work in controlled experiments, a lot of us um, work through, for example, in my work, qualitative interviewing, where you're asking sort of staged questions of someone, and then they're mm -hmm. responding to them. And so sometimes there's this critique that is, you know, how do you know that that's the way that a person is actually going to engage in the world? Is there a difference <coughs> between what they say and what they will do? Mm -hmm. Is there a you know, so for uh, far-right extremists, for example, who I study, um, is there a difference between what they'll admit to in an interview and what they actually hold as personal opinions or beliefs or actions or what they have already done? Um, and so I think um, there's no perfect answer to that, but I think that um, there are methodological tools and skills that we can build on in those kinds of cases that um, that that help you understand how to put respondents at ease, that help make the settings as natural as possible, that make sure that they're not completely artificial, that return to interview the same people um, again, that use transcripts later on so that you have a chance to, um, to talk with them over time and see how things have changed. I mean, there are some <coughs> best practices, I guess is what I'm saying, that can help um, mitigate some of that um, artificial um, uh, study kind of based design um, findings that you're getting out of one setting and applying that to then kind of real life. But I also think, um, and, and so adding observation as well, if you can, uh, in my case, sort of with eth ethnography also helps. But, um, but I think that admitting that this is also not, um, you know, this is not a, a, a mirror reflection of any kind of reality, but that it's mm -hmm. a best case um, research analysis of a situation, or we're looking at patterns over time, we're looking at um, repeated interactions when you have a certain number of, say, 75 people you've interviewed and you're seeing a pattern come out, that you have some indication that there are narratives there that can tell you a story about um, what's happening in a kind of, in my case, in a radicalization process. Um, but um, but that it's not, I, I hesitate to even use the word science. I mean, we, we worry a lot in the social sciences about um, kind of positivistic uh, approaches to kind of thinking that there is a, that there's a formula to, th to, to thinking about how human beings engage. Um, and so I would say, I, th I think being humble about what you actually can, can, can report on is also really important. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say from the perspective of a politician, sometimes you have to be courageous and debunk perceptions. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I mean, in Europe, you have this idea that we're being invaded by migrants coming from Africa or the Middle East, which is absolutely not true. I mean, in Africa is invaded by other African countries. I mean, you have millions of people that are escaping because of war, poverty, mm-hmm. persecution, or violence, but they're staying in their own region and they're not coming to us. And uh, 10,000 people are considered to be an invasion because here, I think, again, the role of media is also are playing uh, the, the role of the bad guys in, in this story mm-hmm. because they are really emphasizing something that is not a problem <coughs> because it's not a problem. The real problem for a migrant is the problem of a migrant rather than for us of, of helping or listening to the stories. And so you have to be bold, courageous, and sometimes also blunt and say, look, this is, and you see a word that you cannot say tell on television, but say this, and perhaps confronting with data and statistics is in very, very important. Now you have statistics about everything. Mm-hmm. In Latin, it's the same root. You, you have to, before being a statesman, you have to be a statistician because you have to work with numbers. And so, because you know the phenomenon and you know how to govern <coughs> that phenomenon. So now we are only working on what the sentiments are called on the, coming from social media or the perception of a phenomenon. We have to do some hard work and trying to bring data and uh, facts into the debate and boldly say, look, this is not only wrong, but you are wrong. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. also think it's important to, to acknowledge that there are important findings, there are important things we can learn even when we don't have definitive causal stories to tell. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the language of invaders, since you mentioned that, I think it's really important that there's, there's great data coming out now that shows that when there's political hate speech, for example, that leads to um, social media hate speech, right? So, so we know that those spikes are associated with each other. That's a correlation, right? Um, so, so political hate speech incites a larger group of social media hate speech, which then inspires hate acts in some cases, right? Now, can you say that in every case of political hate speech that's going to lead to a hate act? No, but you can look at those hate acts and tra- trace them backwards. So you can kind of understand the relationship between them without necessarily saying every time there's a political, you know, a, hate, a, a hateful um, rhetoric or hateful language, it's going to lead to a Pittsburgh shooting, but, but that you understand how those trajectories happen mm-hmm. even through some of the correlations, even if it's not causal. Um, and this changes, if I may, according country to country, because it, despite all the, the horrible rhetoric we have, for instance, in Southern Europe, there's no violence against. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really have the lowest rate of violence in the history of the European Union, for instance, this, this year, last mm-hmm. year. So re- you really don't know why these people are playing the vat, mm-hmm. the hate of the invasion card, because there's absolutely no reason why, and people are not reacting. Or maybe you're just voting for you because you have a very strong stance against something, but then in the, at the end of the day, nothing has changed, and, mm-hmm. and nobody has done mm-hmm. anything in, in a direction or another. Mm-hmm. So I, I really want to take advantage, just build on all of these comments, take advantage of the context for this conversation. Our audience is overwhelmingly scientists. Mm-hmm. Okay? And our, our, our topic is science and its relationship to social justice and mm-hmm. human rights. So if it, it could be a very different conversation right. if it was a different audience mm-hmm. and a different frame. So, mm-hmm. so for me, what's, what's really helpful about these comments is that um, so all the scientists out there who are listening are also people uh, <laughs> <We> <laughs> living <hope>. in part, <laughs> of, in part of their lives. They're not scientists. They're citizens. Mm-hmm. They're people with opinions. They're right. So And also, we all understand that within any area of science that we work, um, in most cases, with very few exceptions, there are competing frameworks and paradigms that kind of govern how people 
take in new information. And, and the thing that's common about whether you're a scientist or a regular person is that you take in new information within the context of the frames that you have in your head, right? So if you're a regular person, an anecdote that fits with the way you believe things are will, will always you know, be more powerful right. than any elegant statistical analysis of anything. If you're a scientist and you're listening to that stuff, um, if, it's, if the findings are things that fit with what you believe, you applaud the study. Mm -hmm. If you don't like the findings, you find the methodological problems in the study, mm -hmm. and you say, I reject this study because mm -hmm. it's methodologically flawed. So at the end of the day, there's a kind of a leveling effect here, the fact that all of us take in information or don't take it in based on what our pre-existing mm -hmm. thoughts are. And the thing that I found really helpful in, in this communication issue is to use the analogy for this audience, it should work, of submitting a paper to a, a very you know, top-tier journal and getting a very critical review back with uh, either a rejection or a re you know, an invitation resubmission. And the first reaction is these reviewers just didn't understand the paper. You know, they, just, they, they weren't smart enough to understand, when in fact the reality is the paper didn't explain it clearly enough mm -hmm. so that fair reviewers would be able to see what we had to say. And that's where I think there is this very important issue mm -hmm. of thinking about when we, when we have hard scientific knowledge and evidence that we think is very useful in this case for dealing with human rights and social justice and, and people aren't listening. So the one issue is they don't like the position that this is pursuing. And the answer to that is not to work harder and harder at hammering that message out, but figure out how this could be communicated in a way mm -hmm. that will be heard by people and change the mm -hmm. nature of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I wanna, sorry, I just want to complicate that a bit because I also sure. think that um, going back to antidotes, sometimes the people that um, aren't reflected in science mm -hmm have something to say to complicate the outcomes of science, because maybe the mm -hmm. questions aren't being asked correctly, mm -hmm. or maybe uh, the, right, the right people aren't a part of the study, or maybe the implicit bias and the historical discrimination that has existed in the field is played out, and, and nobody even knows that. And so sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, if, if it doesn't, if the science doesn't fit what is people's lived experience looks like, then it could be that these antidotes and these um, you know, listening to people mm -hmm. can actually help scientists be oh, absolutely. Absolutely. better right. scientists. Ab yes. absolutely. Absolutely. And produce better science and yeah. more usable science. Mm -hmm. right. may not make them better scientists, but it will make the production of scientific knowledge mm -hmm. be more accessible and actionable. Mm -hmm. yeah. there and and I'll, I'll put my neck out and say that I, I think that um, scientists are, believe that they're more impartial than they actually are. Absolutely. So to your point, I think, you know, I think if, if someone doesn't agree with a, a study, they believe that they're right when they find that methodolo methodological error, um, but they might not look for that in other cases. But they so put more energy into finding the methodological <laughs> errors and the things they don't like. That's, that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. Um, so, Jack, I'm actually going to come to you um, very quickly with a comment that you made, just to, to change gears for a minute. Um, in our discussions leading up to this webinar, you had mentioned that we need to move beyond the rhetoric of social justice and leverage scientific discoveries to drive action agendas that can lead to measurable and meaningful social change. So I'm interested particularly in this term, move beyond the rhetoric of social justice. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, so here, this would be a good example. This is a personal perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So I, 
I mean, I began my career um, finishing medical school and residency training of wanting to be a pediatrician working. I began working in a community health center in New York City in the South Bronx because for me it was a social justice agenda. I mean, I, I you know, mm. a typical adolescent, you know, adult <laughs> idealism. I haven't lost that, but but it's so so the motivation of of addressing inequities and and preventable inequalities and in outcomes for children's lives is something that you either feel passionate about, you kind of you're interested in or you feel like well it's everybody for herself or himself and it's not my responsibility. But so over time I began to feel that that for those people who didn't see the just the gross injustice and unacceptability these inequalities that something needed to be done other than continuing to hammer over the head that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. So science became a very powerful tool for me to basically show how, how, how adverse experiences for kids and families get into the body and, and affect the brain and the immune system, and thinking mm -hmm. that that would work, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, and then for some, but, but it doesn't completely kind of solve the problem because it's just describing, it's, it's adding science to the rhetoric and not providing answers about what we should do, mm -hmm. other than say that this is unjust and we should do mm -hmm. something about it. So for me, this is the untapped frontier mm -hmm. in science right now, which is to begin to kind of use science to, to generate new hypotheses, new ideas, fresh thinking about what we could do to reduce and mitigate the effects of these adversities, recognizing that the real answer is to eliminate poverty and racism and violence. That would that would go far. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think science knows how to do that. But if right. science could figure out how to protect children who are victims of this kind of mm -hmm. of, of these circumstances, it's certainly a powerful ally to, in this struggle. I mean, in injustice, in it's also usually a violation of the law. Mm -hmm. Right. So, right. if you start considering uh, science as a human right or a yet another aspect of uh, how uh, the world over the last 50 years has decided to codify what should be done and what should not be done by states to start with and then all by everybody else, I think it could be a very powerful ally in this struggle. Mm -hmm. And the United Nations adopted the Millennium Development Goals that apparently have been achieved in 2015 and now they relaunch with the Sustainable Development Goals mm -hmm. in, in their agenda to 2030. And science can be used in all of the 17 of them now, but it's never mentioned. Mm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you have to continue mm -hmm. the struggle to advocate for the inclusion at least of scientific evidence-based, I would say, debates before mm -hmm. getting to the decision-making or the decisions. Uh, but it, it's not, it hasn't happened, but it starts happening now, and I think this has to be not only looked at in a very positive way, but promoted and then supported all over the world, I would say, because Talking to people and listening to what they have to say can change geographically in an incredible way. How people mm -hmm. think in Central America is completely different how people think in South America. And, and we mm -hmm. all think that that part, because they speak Spanish, is the same kind of, uh, of world. It's t totally wrong. We see it in Europe. Uh, a, a, a Finnish person thinks completely different than someone from Malta. We are from the same region of the world, but do you have to listen to everybody, their concerns, their mm -hmm. ideas and also their needs, because of course they change. But it is, I mean, inclusion is, I think, another key word in addition to persuasion that we have to use. And mm -hmm. including science in this kind of debates is actually something that needs to be done.
Mm -hmm. I just want to go back to something also that, that Jack said about, and which, which reminded me of the importance of interdisciplinarity in, in mm -hmm. these conversations, because um, what you're saying about the importance of scientists engaging in social justice work aligns really well with what the strongest standards are for teaching social justice to young people, which require kind of four steps, right? So you have to know yourself, you have to know others, which is kind of diversity, understand injustice and inequality, but then commit to act on it. And it's that fourth step that um, schools often don't do very well, that teachers aren't always trained to do very well, and certainly scientists aren't trained to do, which is, so even if you're understanding it and reporting on it um, in your findings, that that next step, whether that's making the knowledge actionable or uh, to policymakers or committing to some kind of small act of change. So one of the things we do with young people in classrooms is getting them into a project. It has to be, they have to be engaged in something that will enact change, and that changes themselves and the way that they look at the world as well. You know, you just reminded me of another way, because scientists are not a homogeneous group. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't mean just by their disciplines, but there are some scientists who, by temperament or by the nature of their work, are, are, are working in the scientific domain to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And there are some scientists and scholars who are working to understand things better mm -hmm. and to not solve problems. And we need them both. And my experience has been in trying to engage scholars from multiple areas is that I've had conversations with some brilliant people who bring tremendous insight into the issues I'm dealing with. But as soon as you try to engage them and, and turn that into an action agenda, their eyes glass over and you see they wish they could run out of the room because it's not what they do, it's not how they think. And, and there are different roles. Well, in some cases, they've even been told not to do it. And I will say, you know, that's mm -hmm. very much the training I got as a graduate student was leave the policy recommendations mm -hmm. to the policymakers. Like, keep that out of your work. And I think that that those of us who want to enact social change or want to have an impact on social change have to really overcome some of that earlier training. Well, mm -hmm. learn how to work with the people who are not going to come in. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they're not right. force them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I actually left graduate school to go to law school precisely <laughs> because <laughs> of that. But I think also we have to recognize there are citizen scientists. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. that when we talk yeah. about interdisciplinary um, kind of approaches and we think about how to how do we bring you know grassroots movements and social justice frontline organizers as a part as a discipline in and of itself mm -hmm. that has a, a seat at the table that can take what feels so theoretical and is their lived experience and really can help um, move to the policy Absolutely. discussion Absolutely. I think to me the a factor that needs to be overcome is the defensiveness of different groups. Mm -hmm. um, and I think bringing a lot of different people to the table who can communicate effectively would certainly help in, in the discussion. Sure. Um, so I'm, I, in the last few minutes, I just wanted to come to a couple of things. Um, one viewer asks um, if there are any resources that you can recommend. We've all been talking about uh, mm -hmm. different books that we've been reading recently um, <coughs> that they can go to to learn a little bit more about this. Um, you, that you would recommend to our audience. So, Cynthia, I know that there are a couple on the data side that you were talking about. Yeah, um, so we were just talking earlier about the Algorithms of Oppression book from Sophia Noble, and uh, there was another one on Weapons, uh, of, math weapons of Math Destruction. Weapons of Math Destruction. I think there are um, yeah, some really good great. resources coming out around uh, big data and how um, <laughs> algorithms work, how, how unconscious bias um, works through some of these algorithms to shape kind of uh, uh, what we see as real. There's also a new book out on conspiracism. Uh, the, the author's name is escaping me, but I know it's from Princeton University Press. It just came out sometime this, this spring, um, which is really helpful at, at helping to 
to look at the change in conspiracy theories over time and the, and the, the removal of theory actually from conspiracies and how they're shaping what people think. Um, so those would be two that I would recommend. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, you know, it's at the risk of sounding self-serving, which you don't really want to do. I mean, we have a website that that basically is is is, is chock full of of videos and briefing brief, brief briefing papers, working papers that are intentionally designed to make science accessible to non-scientists mm -hmm. in the early childhood space. It's developingchild.harvard.edu, and um, it's replenished quite a bit and. We actually began with a U.S. or primarily North American focus and found without intentionally planning that that, that this is what the Internet mm. does, right? It, it has pretty broad global reach and what we've learned and now we've been translating a lot of our material in multiple languages is that the science, obviously the, the, the developmental biology is universal because a lot of it comes from animal studies. So that, right. But that the application, the action use of the science has to be dependent on context, and that's what mm -hmm. science is saying, right? That's mm. that's 21st century biology. Yeah. So, um, so that that website for people who are interested in examples of, of how we're trying to make complex science accessible mm -hmm. to non-scientists, we've got lots of material on there, and it's all downloadable for Thank free. <laughs> well, two of our members of Science for Democracy are working on a book on the right to science, but it's going to come out next year, so you have to invite me again. <laughs> <laughs> for the right title. But I, I would say, Pat, stick to the classics. I think mm -hmm. the Constitution can also have a lot of interesting uh, surprises. Mm -hmm. And if you Google search science in all the, or scientific knowledge, if you want, or culture, in all international uh, instruments of human rights, you will find mm -hmm. a lot of interesting surprises mm -hmm. and start thinking in a yet a different way uh, about science and, and weaponizing, uh, maybe mm -hmm. not science, but you, your, your work. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, AAAS has on-call scientists oh, in a yeah. science mm -hmm. and human Absolutely. rights program. And I think mm -hmm. that for scientists that are trying to kind of dip their toe in human rights, I think that's a really nice entry point to start to engage with and understand some of, um, some of the instruments and some of the um, specifics related to science and human rights. Mm -hmm. And then we have a number of reports where we, on, on the Human Rights Watch website, we have used uh, different methodologies, uh, particularly as I mentioned around satellites. Uh, we're increasingly using support from uh, water scientists to help um, interpret data that we're getting from um, from testing facilities. And so, uh, there there are a number of reports where you can see mm -hmm. that integration between the two. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much for mentioning AAAS. And it, doesn't, it makes me feel less bad by plugging <laughs> it myself. And yeah, the, the, the AAAS uh, Scientific Responsibility, Human Rights, and the Law Program is really fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I had to look it up to make sure I got the name right. It's a long one. Um, and the other program I, I think I should mention um, to, to some of the points that Marco was making is we have the Science and Technology Policy Fellows mm. Program, which mm. is a really fantastic way that we bring scientists into government because I, I personally strongly believe we need more scientists in government. And there was actually a comment asking, should, we, should more activists try to get into government? And mm. it actually came from Italy, so maybe it's a friend of yours. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, it's not that easy, I should say. Yeah. You're alter ego. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, but we are at the end of the hour, so um, unfortunately we, we're going to have to uh, wrap up for today. Uh, so a huge thank you to all of today's panelists for making the time to be with us and sharing uh, their experience and expertise. Uh, Jack Shonkoff, Cynthia Miller-Idris, Amanda Klassing, and Marco Paducah. 
If you'd like to send us your thoughts on today's webinar, please email webinar at AAAS.org. Again, thank you so much to our fantastic panel. Thank you for the invitation. You. You're welcome. Uh, and also to uh, Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Jack. That was great.